Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. In this episode, we go back to 1914, the 18th season of the VFL. 1914 was an eventful year. Obviously, the beginning of World War I is the most significant. But before we get to that, let's have a look at what else was going on. US baseball teams, the New York Giants and the Chicago White Sox visited Australia as part of a world tour. They played games in Brisbane and Sydney and at the MCG. A game in Adelaide was cancelled when the train from Melbourne was delayed and the visiting teams had to go directly to their ship that was sailing to New Zealand. 1914 was also the year the tango dance craze swept the land, much to the dismay of some who thought the tango an immoral dance. In April, the first Coles store opened in Smith Street, Collingwood, a company that has grown to be a part of everyday life for many Australians and whose ads have appeared in many football broadcasts. In July, the first airmail was carried between Melbourne and Sydney on a plane journey that took nine and a half hours of flying time. And in August, the Panama Canal officially opened. But it was the start of the First World War that 1914 is most known for. Britain declared war on Germany on the 4th of August and Australia, as a dominion of the British Empire, was automatically at war too. News was reported and spread differently at this time. There was no internet, TV or radio. So if you wanted to know what was happening as war approached, you gathered outside the newspaper premises. For example, there were huge crowds reported outside the offices of the Argus and the Age in the days leading up to the outbreak of war. The news of Britain's declaration of war was reported on the 6th of August, but the newspapers were different then. Even with such a momentous occasion, the first few pages carried classifieds, and it was not until you got to about pages 6 or 8 that readers could get the details and the stories of the momentous events and the unfolding situation. The start of the war coincided with the third interstate football carnival held in Sydney, and the early battles of the war occurred as the VFL finals took place in September. Men who had grown up watching the VFL establish itself were now old enough to enlist. 750 VFL players would sign up for service during the war, and 94 died on active service. The equivalent of five football teams. We will see the full impact on the competition in future episodes, but for now, let's focus on the football for 1914. Collingwood Football Club were having some extended negotiations with the Collingwood City Council regarding the costs of Victoria Park. There was some discussion between the club and the East Melbourne Cricket Ground on the option of Collingwood playing their home games there. A compromise was achieved and Collingwood kept playing their home games at Victoria Park. But just imagine how the VFL would have developed if clubs did not have to travel to Victoria Park to play Collingwood from those early days. I am sure that many visiting teams and supporters would have been happy if Collingwood's home had been somewhere other than Victoria Park. Melbourne would pay players this season. They had tried to remain an amateur club, but the reality of competing in a professional competition meant that they had to make the change. There were fears that the wealth of the MCC would mean that they could outbid all other clubs, but, as reported in the Herald, Melbourne were going to take a conservative approach with payments. University would become the only club committed to an amateur approach for season 1914. In May, there was talk of a big scheme to take Australia's game to the United States 
as part of a world tour, including games in France and England. Whether the big scheme would ever have eventuated is impossible to tell. The coming war meant that it would never get off the drawing board. The season opened on Saturday, April 25. Fitzroy unfurled their premiership flag before a comfortable win over Melbourne. St Kilda also got off to a winning start against Richmond, Dave McNamara having an immediate impact in his first game back with the Saints, kicking six out of a total of eight goals. Geelong were hosting Carlton and had to endure threats of a union-led boycott which could have involved union members from teams and spectators. The problem was two gatekeepers employed by Geelong, who had also worked as scabs on a sewerage project in Geelong. The local wharf union was not happy that Geelong was employing these workers and there was some tension in the lead-up to the game. But the game proceeded uninterrupted with a large crowd in attendance before ending in a draw. Not the only one in the opening round, Collingwood and Carlton also had a draw at Victoria Park. Carlton supporters feeling the more frustrated with their club's appalling inaccuracy, costing them the win. Six goals 20 to Collingwood's eight goals eight. But a draw is better than a loss. The year developed into one of the most even in the competition's history. St Kilda beat Carlton at Princess Park in round two. The umpire, appropriately named Mr White, was officiating in his first game and neither side was happy with his efforts. After the game, he was rushed by an estimated 2,000 Carlton supporters and knocked to the ground before police could come to his rescue. Many women were brandishing their umbrellas and men were shaking their fists. The pandemonium could be heard a mile away. Not a proud day for the Carlton supporters. By round six, Essendon and South Melbourne were the two leading teams and their game at the East Melbourne Cricket Ground was close all day with the Southerners getting up by two points to take clear top spot on the ladder. It was the beginning of a slide down the ladder for the Dons, though they would play a role in the makeup of the finals. In round eight, South hosted Collingwood, but despite having the home ground advantage, they lost to the Magpies by three points, which allowed Fitzroy to take over top spot on the ladder. The Maroons, having a strong season, had only lost one game. Round eight also saw Carlton beat Essendon. The Blues were putting a very young team on the park this season and so far had had a slow start to the season, including two draws. By round 10, St Kilda had got themselves to third on the ladder, but then they had a mid-season slump, losing to Richmond, Carlton and drawing with Essendon. In round 12, there was another top-of-the-table clash, this time between South and Fitzroy. Fitzroy lost their second game of the season, but held on to top spot by half a game. However, things were going to get very tough for the reigning premiers for the remainder of the season. They lost again in round 13 to Collingwood, but kept top spot because the improving Carlton beat South Melbourne. Round 14 saw 30,000 people packed into the tiny Brunswick Street Oval for the match of the round, where Fitzroy lost their third game in a row, this time to the Blues, who now started to firm into premiership calculations. Beating the top two teams in consecutive weeks will get people's focus. At this point in the season, the top seven spots were separated by two games. Round 15 saw Geelong add to Fitzroy's woes, inflicting their fourth defeat in a row and giving the country team hope of a finals finish. South Melbourne lost a home game against Essendon, a team unlikely now to make the finals, 
but still able to do some harm to those trying to get into the fore. In an unusual incident during this game, a spectator jumped the fence and punched Essendon's captain, Alan Belcher. The spectator was alleged to have been upset about Belcher giving some of the South players a bit of rough treatment. After the punch, a South Melbourne player said, Are you going to stand that? Belcher went after the spectator and returned the blow. A steward then reported Alan Belcher for striking, but he was cleared at the tribunal, who took the view that the rules about striking applied between players and that the spectator got what he deserved. No mention of whether Alan's brother, Vic, who played for South, went to help his brother in dealing with this spectator invading the ground. Round 16 saw another record broken, but sadly this was for University losing their 49th game in a row, taking that dubious honour from the previous holders, St Kilda. But now clubs and supporters could have a break, as the season was put on hold to allow for the Interstate Carnival being held in Sydney. The Carnival brought together teams from every state. The attempt to promote the game in Sydney was sadly overshadowed by the declaration of war the day before the Carnival began, and crowd numbers were understandably lower than expected. Victoria won all of their games and claimed the championship over South Australia in the final match in front of a crowd of 12,000 people at the SCG. Round 17 was held three weeks after Round 16, and Geelong ended the Saints' finals hopes by winning comfortably at the Corio Oval. South Melbourne made sure of their finals position by beating Collingwood at Victoria Park. The declaration of war was already having an impact. Many of university's players were already enlisted, and it was feared that they would have trouble getting a team. St Kilda's colours of red, white and black were the same as those of Germany. It was decided that the Saints would show their patriotism by sewing a small Union Jack to their jumpers. It does provide some insight into the state of mind of the time that patriotism was shown by adopting a Union Jack rather than the Australian flag, but Australians of that era associated very strongly as members of the British Empire. The final round of the season had a knockout game between Geelong and Collingwood at Victoria Park to see who would get fourth spot. Carlton had top spot secure with their percentage, but even so they had to come from behind to beat Richmond by one goal. South defeated Melbourne as expected, but Fitzroy lost their game against Essendon and second spot. The reigning premiers had endured a terrible second half of the season, losing five out of the last seven games in a remarkable reversal of form. At Victoria Park, Geelong were making every effort to secure the win, even wearing a blue clash jumper to avoid the risk of confusion with the Collingwood players. The game was close until three-quarter time, but then, despite playing at home and for a spot in the finals, the Magpies were held scoreless in the final quarter, Geelong having a comfortable 24-point win. The other two highlights of the round were University playing and losing their final game to St Kilda, and in his 27th and final game of EFL football, Arthur Fitzroy Best kicked the entire Melbourne score of five goals, five behinds. The first semi-final was on the 5th of September between South Melbourne and Geelong. The price of admittance was doubled, with the additional sixpence to be donated to the Lord Mayor's Patriotic Fund, which had been organised to provide additional supplies to soldiers at the front, such as chocolate, tobacco 
and other supplements to rations. There was some opposition to the price increase, and the Carlton Committee had argued that a donation should be made from the League's general funds, rather than enforcing a price increase on everyone. The crowd was 25,000 people down from the 40,000 attendees a year earlier. However, as noted by Observer in the Argus, there was a price increase, a war and a federal election competing with the semi-final. It was an unsatisfactory game on a windy day leading to scrambly play. Perhaps Geelong had played their final a week earlier when they beat Collingwood because they did not have that level of intensity against South Melbourne. But they had their chance to win. In fact, they were two goals up at three-quarter time. But the Southerners kicked three goals to one in the last quarter to claim a win. Five goals 14-44 to Geelong's five goals 7-37. The second semi-final was held the following week between the latter leader Carlton and the reigning Premier's Fitzroy. The Blues had the right of challenge and the Maroons had the challenge of overcoming their poor form from the latter part of the season. There had been some debate during the week about removing the sixpence price increase or the mandatory donation to the Patriotic Fund, but the league was firm in their commitment. The crowd was again down on the previous year, despite the clash of two popular local clubs. Only 28,000 people attended, compared to about 43,000 for the previous year. It was a quiet crowd, and for the second week in a row, a disappointing game. Whether the break for the Interstate Carnival a couple of weeks before the finals had disrupted players, or the destruction of the onset of war, or perhaps it was just a coincidence. The summary of the game in The Age gives a clear impression. Quote, The first half of the game was dull and monotonous, with very indifferent groundwork, and nothing very great was done in the second by the way of sustained effort. Unquote. The Blues led for the whole game, and the final scores were Carlton, 9 goals 8, 62, to Fitzroy, 5 goals 12, 42. The stage was set for the final, Carlton versus South Melbourne, with the Southerners having the challenge of winning twice to gain the premiership, given that the Blues finished the season on top of the ladder. In the week leading up to the final, University made the decision to end their league adventure. While the advent of professionalism had left them struggling to win a game in recent seasons, the coming of the war meant that they would struggle to name a side. Out of the 112 men who had played for university over the seven years in the VFL, at least 81 enlisted for service. This decision was made to join forces with Melbourne. There was some anticipation that North Melbourne would be invited to join the VFL, given that they had become the most successful of the VFA teams. The other proposal was that a nine-team VFL would allow the club having a bye each week to travel to the country to help promote the game. The impact of the war in coming years would mean that it was some time before either option could be explored further. Carlton had the right to be favourites, having worked their way to the top of the ladder with a strong second half of the season. South Melbourne supporters could point to a run of three wins in a row and having finished second on the ladder to give them some confidence too. The crowd was again down, just over 20,000 people. But alongside the challenges of war and price rises was the weather. It was one of those cold, wet September days that reminds Melbourne that spring can sometimes be a lot closer to winter than summer. The Friday before the game was a sunny 24 degrees. Saturday was a wet 13 degree bone chiller. 
The Argus reported that many had expected that the Adverse Weather Committee would postpone the game. So perhaps the 20,000 spectators was reasonable. Conditions were so cold that many of the players wore black woolen gloves to help them hold the ball. South Melbourne had the wind in the first quarter and looked like they were going to dominate the scoring. But the Carlton defenders stood up to the challenge. The Blues had limited time in their forward line and fewer shots at goal. But overall, they would have been happy with the quarter-time result. South, one goal four to the Blues, no goals, one behind. South had the lead, but Carlton supporters thought that they would take better advantage of the wind. And although the Blues did put on three goals, it seemed that South were playing better football against the wind than with it. They also picked up two goals, and the game could hardly have been closer at half-time. South, three goals six, 24, leading by one point with Carlton on three goals five. 23. The Blues struggled to score in the third quarter, but the Southerners looked like they had wasted their chance to dominate the game. Adding one goal and six behinds must have left them worried that the Blues, coming home with the wind in the last quarter, would take over the game. But in an odd last quarter, Carlton could not score at all, while South Melbourne picked up an all-important goal against the wind. The final scores were South Melbourne, 5 goals 13, to Carlton on three goals six. In the second half, South Melbourne had kicked two goals seven to the Blues' solitary behind. The Premiership had been forced into a grand final decider on Saturday the 26th of September. The umpire was not Jack Elder, but he will be back, so we'll save any farewell comments for a future episode. Instead, it was a newcomer to the umpire fraternity, Harry Rawls. Having umpired in the VFA, Harry joined the VFL in 1914 and after 19 country games was appointed to senior ranks in round 17. He then umpired all finals games in 1914, the grand final being his sixth game, surely the most inexperienced umpire to ever officiate in the premiership match. He would never become a regular umpire, never had another final and retired after the 1924 season with a total of only 22 games to his name. But he would be remembered for his efforts in the 1914 Grand Final. The Blues were led by Billy Dick. Originally from Saul, he started his league career at Fitzroy in 1908, becoming their leading goalscorer in 1909 before moving to the Blues in 1911. He was known for his leadership and captained the Blues from 1914 to 17, as well as captaining Victoria to victory in the 1914 Interstate Carnival. What makes these achievements even more remarkable was the fact that he was blind in one eye. He had become one of the league's dominant centre-half backs. He was often seen leaping for marks at the same time as turning his face side onto the ball. He would play with Carlton to 1918 for a career total of 153 games. South Melbourne were led by Vic Belcher. He had taken the captaincy in 1913 after being the acting captain in the 1912 semi-final against Essendon, led by his brother Alan. He had played for South since 1907, and was in their breakthrough premiership in 1909. He had faced Carlton in the 1907 grand final when the Blues were in the middle of their premiership hat-trick. Known as one of the league's leading ruckmen, ending his career as a defender. In 2003, he was selected in the Sydney-South Melbourne Team of the Century, He had a deep and long involvement with the game, going on to coach South Melbourne and then becoming a boundary umpire, officiating in the 1921 Grand Final. 
joining a select group of men who have played in VFL Grand Finals, won premierships and then returned to Grand Final Day as an umpire. Collingwood's Lady Tullock, who was captain in the 1902 and 1903 premierships, as well as a field umpire in 1907, being another member. The crowd was 30,400, which was the largest for the final series, but still well down on previous years. Carlton had made the grand final with an extraordinary nine first-year players, one of the most successful rebuilding efforts in league history. While South had ample experience in their team with three grand finals in the last seven years and multiple finals campaigns, South started with the wind at their backs and made an impression within the opening minutes. Bruce Loss took a fine place kick on a difficult angle from half forward to score the opening goal. Sloss was in the play again when Alan Donoghue passed the ball to him, but this time it was only a behind added to the score. Carlton's wingman, Ted Brown, got their first goal from a free kick. Brown's first attempt had missed, but the South defender had stepped over the mark and Brown was given a second chance and kicked truly. Then it was half-forward flanker Percy Dankin, one of the many first-year players for the Blues, who put them in the lead with another goal. Before the quarter could finish... Bruce Loss, one of the best players on the ground, scored from 45 yards out. After some disappointing games earlier in the final series, the grand final was capturing everybody's interest. The quarter-time scores were Carlton, 2 goals 3-15, to South Melbourne, 2 goals 5-17. South were in front, but had they taken full advantage of the breeze? The second quarter saw Carlton take control of the game. Their captain, Billy Dick was taking strong marks and using his judgment to repel any forward effort by the Southerners. But, to be honest, the ball did not often get down to that end of the ground. The Blues were playing a quicker and cleaner game, judging the fall of the ball better than their opponents. But Carlton could have made things much more comfortable for themselves if they had kicked straight. They put on three goals five while keeping the Southerners from scoring to go to the half-time break at five goals eight thirty-eight with South still on 2 goals 5-17. Blue supporters were starting to feel a little bit hopeful, while those from South Melbourne put their hopes in a third quarter revival, with the wind still providing some assistance. And the start of the third quarter provided some encouragement. Forward pocket Dick Mullaly, playing his second grand final, opened accounts with a goal. But then Billy Dick demonstrated the classic captain's game, to cut off three separate entrances by South. The Blues did not score into the wind during the third quarter, but South failed to score enough, adding just one goal and six inaccurate points. When the bell rang, Carlton had a handy nine-point lead, five goals 8.38 to three goals 11.29. There was only one quarter of football left in the season. South would seem to have the bigger challenge, as only two goals had been kicked into the wind all day. But perhaps their experience would help against a Carlton team with nine first-year players. It was one of those youngsters, Herb Burley, playing in the forward pocket, who got the first goal for Carlton, and that must have left South supporters thinking about an early departure. But then their team started to give them reason for hope. A faint hope, perhaps, but still something to cling to. Bruce Sloss was creating multiple entries into their forward line, putting the Blues into a defensive mindset. South Rover, Jim Caldwell, passed the ball to their ruckman, Les Charge, who kicked another goal for South. There are other shots at goal, but they resulted in behinds. 
South found themselves six points down. A goal would mean a draw, and a third rematch to decide the premiership. Then came the pivotal moment in the final few minutes of the game. A long kick sailed towards South's Tom Bollard, alone in the goal square, looking like he would take the mark and tie the game up, possibly for the first draw ever in a grand final. But then the controversial moment that is still argued by some over a hundred years later. Carlton's fullback, Ernie Jamison, came from nowhere to leap over Bollard and punch the ball away. The South Melbourne supporters screamed for the free kick. But not for the first time, nor for the last time, would an umpire refuse to pay a free kick in front of goal at such a critical moment. Was it umpire Harry Rawls' inexperience that made him hold off from blowing his whistle? This was just his sixth game. Or was it a fair spoil and a good decision? Your answer probably depends on which team you barrack for. Carlton cleared the ball and the bell sounded shortly afterwards. They had won the 1914 Premiership by six points. South Melbourne had lost another grand final. Perhaps Observer in the Argus summed it up best when he said, quote, While no one can exactly say they should have won, no one can deny that they might have won. Unquote. And Observer was amongst others who thought that Rawls had had fair game as umpire, so perhaps the credit for the win should go to the Carlton team. Bill Dick, their captain, had been one of the best players on the ground and was one of the quietest in the noisy rooms of the Premiers. He said, It was a hard fight to win, and if South had kicked better, our task would have been much stiffer. In the South Melbourne rooms, Vic Belcher said, I thought we had them in the final quarter. I believe we were the better team on the day, but I will leave that to other people to judge. The public is no doubt fully satisfied with the game, and I congratulate Carlton on beating us after a fine run. The win was made all the more special for Carlton, being the 50th year of the club. At least the cricket club was 50 years old. Some veterans claim the football club was even older. And two of the oldest men in the Carlton rooms mentioned that Carlton won the premiership against Geelong 50 years ago and recounted many of the interesting points of what was achieved in that distant past. I reckon some of the younger players and supporters would not really have been listening that closely. They'd just won a premiership for this season. And who really is interested in old football history anyway? Carlton did travel to Adelaide the following week for the traditional Premiership of Australia game, which was again won by Port Adelaide, 9 goals 16 to Carlton on 5-6. It was a rough game with many fights. The Adelaide Press commented, Had the Victorians, who ran wild and thus brought reprisals upon themselves, been rigorously checked, it would have been better for all. Towards the end of the year, serious efforts were made to define a combined set of rules for Australian football and rugby league. Officials from the Australian Football Council and the New South Wales Rugby League met over the Melbourne Cup week in an effort to define a set of rules that would allow a common brand of football across all Australian states and that could also be played in England. Despite the enthusiasm of some and many meetings, no such common game was ever developed. So that was season 1914. Carlton had won their fourth premiership. University had ended their seven-year effort to compete in the league and the impact of the war, declared late in the season, was going to have an increasing impact. The smaller crowds and fundraising efforts seen at the finals 
was the beginning of many changes and challenges the competition would see in the coming years. So join me next time when we look at season 1915, the 19th VFL Premiership season, as the league and the players deal with the demands of playing football during a time of war. If you've enjoyed Grand Final History, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. If you have questions or want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au or check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or Facebook or Twitter for more Grand Final History. <laughs>